for us, or our point of view is that you, you have to have production and sourcing nailed down before anything. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify. The easiest way is to online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how they got their first 100 customers, how do you know if you have product market fit, and how they determine pricing of their luxury products. Before we dig into our show, I want to let you know that as we all find new ways to grow and pivot during the effects of the crisis, the team at Shopify put together The Navigator, which is a free weekly curated newsletter filled with resources, insights, and tips to help businesses adapt and navigate this time of uncertainty and beyond. Sign up now for The Navigator at shopify.com slash SMB newsletter. Today, I'm joined by Aaron from Kara. Kara sells handbags reimagined, the perfect balance of form and function designed for life in motion and was started in 2015 and based out of New York. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, thanks, Felix, for having me. Yeah, so the idea behind this business came when I believe you and your partner both moved to New York City. Tell us more about that. Like, What did you discover once you had spent life in, the New, York, in New York City? Yeah, yeah, so a little background behind the brand. So, you know, both my co-founder and I, you know, we, we do kind of, you know, we always say, that we don't come from fashion, especially, especially myself, but, but we do in the sense that my family has been doing handbag uh, manufacturing, luxury handbag manufacturing for the last 30 years. And uh, my co-founder, Carmen Chen Wu, she is a CFDA awarded a fashion designer, spent a lot of her time, you know, working with, you know, high-end design houses and changing designing for the runway. So, you know, when we came together back in 2015 in the city, you know, we obviously knew the handbag space fairly well. A lot of cool things are happening in the space, you know, especially for a lot of luxury houses. Um, you know, when I think about some of the larger kind of couture type of uh, brand names coming from Europe, again, very cool things coming from design standpoint. But one thing we felt that we that that, that needed a little bit of improvement, I guess, <laughs> it's, um, it's it's lack of functionality. Right. So, you know, woman, woman handbag or handbag specifically plays such an intricate part of her wardrobe on a daily basis. But we just felt that a lot of the handbags couldn't have the functionalities that it would keep up with her active lifestyle, at least for the millennial consumers that we, we initially aim to service. So the, the idea behind the brand really is around, you know, creating a luxury item at, you know, kind of direct consumer price point or contemporary price point. Uh, but very much focused on functionality and keeping up with the lifestyle. So, you know, and I'm sure we're going to get into a little more later on, but, you know, if you take out one of our hero products, you know, our studio bag, um, the bag is produced in the same factories as some of the world's leading luxury brands from Europe. Uh, we keep the prices below $400 in terms of the price point, so it's a lot less than a luxury item. And when it comes to functionality, you will see that, you know, you can wear a bag in three different ways. So as a backpack, crossbody, satchel. And then it's going to have different compartments for different type of activities that you do throughout the day. So there's a compartment for the gym, compartment for your tech, compartment for your makeup, wallets, keys, phones, and so on and so forth. So, um, so that's kind of the idea behind how we initially started is to really give her, right, because it's mainly a woman's brand, a, a product that really can keep up with her lifestyle and, and something that she, you know, wouldn't really need two or three more bags throughout the day. Just one bag will serve all the purposes. Mm. So it sounds like an amazing partnership of multiple or two different experiences and skill sets combined that obviously contributes a lot to the success of your business. Now, how did you meet your co-founder? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So, you know, we both are, are, are from Chinese background, but we both grew up in Spain, actually. So, and it's funny because, you know, unlike the U.S., Spain, you know, similar to some of the European countries back in the 70s and 80s, there weren't that many immigrants per se and uh, you know we actually came to knew each other more from our time spent in new york but uh, when we start uh, connecting and start sharing some notes and, and war stories about you know how, how our time in spain we realized that our families actually knew each other matter of fact our grandparents at one point did business together which was a uh, wow you know we always joke around it's some somewhat of a fate um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, I mean, it, and it's somewhat magical, right? To a certain extent, because when we, when we came together, um, and we started discussing different ideas, um, and, and, you know, full disclosure, Kara wasn't really our first venture. We had a sourcing agency before that helping smaller brands to source and, and manufacture out of Asia. 
But, you know, when we started kind of coming together and thinking through just a number of different ideas, you know, we quickly realized that, you know, at the end of the day, we really like the engineering path. We, you know, specifically love the manufacturing supply chain and handbag industry just because we feel that even though it's a mature industry, um, you know, there were some areas that was ripe for disruption. So, so yeah, so it's, you know, we came together, you know, it was a perfect time in our lives to kind of start thinking about, you know, kind of the next chapter in our lives. Um, you know, if you, if you kind of look at ourselves in terms of skill sets, we always say that we have the perfect yin-yang. You know, I'm the more the business dev, the outgoing, a little bit more, you know, more salesy type of personality. And Carmen, you know, besides her kind of design background and product background and, and just overall taste making background, uh, she, she grounds me quite a bit, right? So I, I always say this, you know, the, the number one advice I give to a lot of entrepreneurs that we get a chance to work with or meet is, you know, if you do end up having a business partner, which I fully recommend, um, you know, it's make sure that you find somebody that can complement your skill sets, that can be really great at what you are not. Um, so that it's a, it's a kind of a complementary relationship as, as you thrive. Mm. Now, how do you know that you are a good fit? Like, how do you, how can you pick that up as early as possible to understand that you are, you know, going to this long-term relationship with a, a partner that is actually going to be a good fit over the long term? Yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky. You know, a lot of it, it's almost like dating, right? It's like, how do you know, you know, some, some people see, you know, uh, start dating and, and realize that, oh, you know, let's, let's stay for a while and see what happens. Some people days like, nope, you know, I'm, I'm marrying you tomorrow. I'm getting a ring and taking you to, uh, to church. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, for us, I think it was very clear to us pretty early that we share a lot of same values. And I think it has to do a lot with the fact that we grew up in a European country, um, from Chinese background. You know, I think, you know, we, we were, I guess you can call it first generation immigrants. Our parents were all born in China and, you know, we were the first generation that really had the opportunity to really grow outside of China, still with very kind of connected roots back to China. But, you know, I, I think when, when you are growing up in that kind of way, I feel like a lot of your values are very much the same. You know, we, we both think about investments the same way. We both think about value the same way. We both think about how to service the customers the same way. So, so when, when we kind of sat down and, and started kind of comparing notes, if you may, it became pretty quickly, you know, you quickly realized that there's, um, there's a lot of similarities in how we're thinking about, uh, the world, if you may. But even though our skill sets, like I mentioned before, are very, very, very good. So it, it is somewhat of art, you know, and, and I, like I said, ultimately to, to dating a little bit. It's, it's like, you know, it's a little bit of dancing in the beginning, but you know, you, you, you know, for us, you know, we, we both kind of looking back and said, you know, pretty quickly we realized that, you know what, there's something here and we should, we should definitely give it a try. And, you know, five, five and a half years later, you know, here we are with a thriving brand. So we, we think, we think we made the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, one thing you mentioned, I've heard other entrepreneurs mention too that, 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 that have partnerships is having the shared values, shared value systems helps you overcome a lot of the differences that will come up, you know, like in any relationship, dating, marriage, or, or, or co-founders, there are going to be differences and potential clashing of work styles, especially when you mention how you got, you want to find a partner that complements and not, not just repeats your skill sets, which could lead to maybe Differing priorities, differing beliefs on which one, what's more important. How do you make sure that you work well together with someone that is a complement, which it usually means an opposite in a lot of cases from you? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. I think communication is key. You know, I think you need to establish very early on to openly communicate. Um, you know, not holding anything back from each other and you know, in in an amicable and 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 polite way, right? I mean, you know. The, we, we never really get into any shouting match, if you may. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's having a really open communication and, and, you know, from the get go, set expectations of what's important for each other, right? Um, to your point, sometimes, you know, the priorities do conflict a little bit, but, you know, it's all about, again, having a conversation and, and have the ability to compromise, right? And, and say, look, it is a team effort at the end of the day. And this is especially true as our team started to grow beyond just Carmen and I when we first started the brand is to kind of not only just have the communication among ourselves, but even with our first and second and third and fourth and the 10th hire, right, in terms of like what is important to them. And and so that's 
it's a company culture that we, we, you know, kind of strive to, to, to continue as we grow as a brand. Um, but yeah, communication probably is the number, the, the top number one priority for us in terms of the company as far as having that open communication, um, and open dialogue among, among each other. Got it. Yeah. So you mentioned that before starting Kara, you you both had started a sourcing agency, which I believe you mentioned was helping companies domestically, I guess here in the United States, source manufacturing overseas. Can you say a little more about that? Like how useful was that experience when starting Kara? Yeah. So we we both have passion about product, right? I mean, we're we're product geeks at the at heart. Um, and and so even before starting a brand, starting brands is very difficult. And, and, you know, I'm going to get into it afterwards a little bit. Um, you know, anybody who has attempted to start the brand, uh, will tell you that it's, it's, it's a long journey. It's a, it's a treacherous road. Um, so we, we were kind of, you know, didn't really want to get into the product or didn't really want to get into the brand side. Um, when we first started working together, right? But we knew that our passion was around supply chain, manufacturing, global supply chain, logistics, just because, you know, I, I, my background is in finance, but like I said, my family's been doing it for so long. Um, that's kind of embedded in our DNA. And similar story with Carmen, even though she comes from kind of a luxury designer background, her family has always been in manufacturing supply chain as well. Um, we started, you know, a small sourcing agency called Terracotta Partners. And the idea behind it is we saw back then, this was six years ago, six and a half years ago. Back then, we realized that there were a few large sourcing agencies that were that, that they were helping you know larger brands uh in the u.s but other parts of the world too right um so think of like you know these are the, the walmart's the costco's the tommy hilfiger's the victoria secrets large brands that work a lot with sourcing agencies um in order to help them to not only just source from different parts of the world but also manage logistics and supply chain um and you know as a result they're able to enjoy a lot of the and the benefits that comes with sourcing agencies, because sourcing agencies, especially if you work with larger brands, have a lot of uh, scale, meaning that you can get a lot cheaper price uh, for your product. But of course, you know you have to have a lot of volume. We kind of wanted to take that, but give it to the little guys, right? We said, okay, that's great. But what about those emerging brands that has been doing business for a little bit of time, but it's looking to scale, but has been maybe manufacturing primarily domestically, but it's ready to take the next leap, whether it's China, whether it's Brazil, whether it's Mexico, right? So, um, so the idea was to kind of take in that sourcing model, but really kind of working and helping smaller brands to scale. Um, and, and it was a widely successful agency. We grew, you know, very rapidly in the first two years. But then, you know, like I said, we started exploring the idea of carrot just mainly because we just felt that that space that I described before back then. You know, we feel that we could actually tell a story that nobody was really doing it, right? So, you know, back to my initial kind of idea and value proposition, you know, how do we give a functional bag that is truly luxurious? And we can claim that because, like I said, we make it from the same factory as some of the world's leading luxury brands. We source it from the sound of the tanneries and mills, the same tanneries that work for some of the European houses, and but keeping the prices really affordable, right? So giving that value product but really keeping the design really functional and you know one of the things I, I i didn't mention before is we knew from the start that we also wanted to go dtc right away um you know we we if you look at our business we do have a healthy amount of wholesale partners currently but you know going directly to customers was very important to us and obviously shopify plays a big role in that um but it was uh, it was something that is important to us because then we can have that two way dialogue with our customers, which helped us tremendously, which I will touch on later on. So, so I know I know I kind of uh, addressed the question with a bunch of different answers, but I think initial again, you know, I, I, the, the pivot between agency to brand was really kind of a knowing that we have the strength of design and supply chain, so we know that we have the kind of the goods to really create a brand. But again, most importantly, we just felt that there was a void that needed to be filled. And, uh, and you know, we took a shot at it. And I think, you know, because we were one of the first to market, we were able to actually establish this category quite, uh, quite strongly, I think, for the short period of time that we've been around. 
And you recognize that this there, there was a void, but then specifically you were going to be able to fill it because of your sourcing agency experience, or was it something Correct. else that you saw? Okay, got it. Correct. Now, from an entrepreneur's perspective, because it sounds like you worked with a lot of a lot of more smaller brands, are you, are you talking about like solo founders, like small teams? Like, what is the? Do you see an advantage for a, a an entrepreneur, like a typical entrepreneur that's listening to this podcast, as maybe you know solo founder or a team of ten or less? Does it make sense for them to go with a sourcing agency, or can they do it themselves? Like, what's your recommendation these days? I think it depends a little bit on your product and your market a little bit. So, if I think about kind of the main customers that we work with on the on the sourcing side, um, you know, usually is below twenty million, twenty to twenty five million dollars in sales. So, you know, a, a, a thriving business, but still smaller and, and easier to manage. Uh, so that's kind of more or less give you an idea in terms of the size of the business. Um, as far as manufacturing, look, a lot of, most of, actually all of the customers that we work with on, on the sourcing side, they already have, you know, some type of footprint in terms of, uh, manufacturing, right? Whether it's lo- locally or, uh, when I say locally, domestically, U.S. or overseas. Um, I think, you know, a lot of them come to us for, you know, different reasons. I would say some of them is looking to consolidate, you know, you know, I can think of one customer that will come to us and say, look, I manufacture a little bit in the U.S., a little bit in Mexico, a little bit in Canada, and a bunch of them in Malaysia, right? So uh, I can't give up. It's logistics a nightmare, you know, you know, every, and, and this particular customer do a lot of wholesale. So every time each season comes, you know, I, I, I go nuts, right, in terms of managing logistics and so on and so forth. How can you help us to consolidate? So that's, that's one of the reasons that you will want to go to a sourcing agency. That to, from a consolidation and simplification standpoint to help you kind of, uh, you know, streamline your operations a little bit, right? So that's, that could be one. So if you're in a similar boat, uh, where you just have a lot of different areas that you're touching on from a sourcing manufacturing standpoint, sure. Think about working maybe with a, you know, a sourcing agency that can help you actually manage through that. Some other brands come to us because they have been, you know, paying domestic prices, enjoying domestic volumes, uh, but it's looking to scale. And, and, you know, for whatever reason they, 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 they can't or don't want to pay domestic prices in terms of scale, they're thinking about going overseas. Going overseas, you know, it's a minefield, right? A lot of people think that you can just pick up a website, find your factories, start emailing them and voila, you can show up in China one day and, and start producing. Sure, at thousand feet level, that's what happened. <laughs> But, you know, it's a minefield. I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong in logistics and supply chain. So, you know, I, you, I always recommend to my customers, right? If you've never done it before, sure, either hire somebody in house who have done this before or go with a sourcing agency that can help you kind of hold your hands a little bit. Two, three, four years down the road when you are mature enough, you can think about making changes, you know, whatever that change is. Uh, but, I, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, again, you can perfectly hire a good logistic production person to help you through that. But, you know, sourcing agencies a lot of times fill that gap where you don't have that kind of access to the kind of resources. Mm, so it sounds like for, for most smaller brands that are starting out, they probably don't need a sourcing agencies more for brands that have a bit of a more mature and established business first. So now when you decided to, when you recognized that there was this void, you and your, your co-founder, and decided to, go to, to start attacking it, what were some of the most critical skill sets that you now had to pick up now that you're more focused on building a brand? Yeah, I think first and foremost, and again, you're probably going to hear from different people, different answers for us. Uh, or our point of view is that you, you have to have production and sourcing nailed down before anything, right? So, you know, and, and there's so many great designers out there, you know, and we were fortunate enough to work with a bunch of them through our sourcing agency. But the reality is that having an idea is just part of the equation. I think, you know, getting that sampled, produced, shipped, sold, you know, that, that is, that is a, mammoth effort right so for us we knew if we didn't really have that kind of supply chain production background you know and and we purely had design and marketing um i I probably think twice before starting any any brand really um so so i would say for us and for any entrepreneurs that we meet and mentor and so on and so forth that that's the number one thing we always ask is what does your supply chain look like 
and how you're going to produce this, how you're going to scale up and down, and you know what you're going to do if something happens to a particular location if you need to pivot, right? So those are some of the more intricate questions that we ask. Um, you know, once you have the product, you have the substance, right? Because a lot of times, you know, I always say your product, you design to substance, marketing to a certain extent, it's how you tell the brand story. I think once you have the product, then you have the right to start thinking about storytelling and communicating to your customers and start building, you know, kind of your community based on the product. But like I said, I, and again, you might hear this, you know, some other people would definitely disagree with me and, and have other points of view. But for me, product is substance. At the end of the day, you're selling product. You're not selling fluff, right? So if your product is not great and you don't have a point, unique point of view and you don't even have the production and supply chain to produce it, I think, um, I, I think, uh, I, I think your, your business plan should probably be looked at. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that you're. I think there's a lot of people on your side where they are product focused, product first business, and believe the same philosophies that that you believe. For someone out there, then that it, that is looking to enter a space like like fashion or a space where product is the most important aspect of the business, it sounds like a lot to learn. A lot of kind of like dark arts of like manufacturing, the supply chain. Like, where would someone even begin if? Their goal is to build some kind of fashion brand, but don't have any experience with manufacturing. And if that is where they should start first, if you know if they listen to listening to your advice and that's where they want to start first, how do they even start there? Yeah, so so I would say you know when you're just starting, right? So without even you know because I I think I mainly touched on businesses that are a little more established and it's looking to scale. I think if I take a step back and, and talking to those first time entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs just starting at the stealth mode age or stealth mode stage, I would say of, of your business, forget about overseas manufacturing. You know, you're going to get killed with minimums. You're going to kill with complexity. Stick to local fa- manufacturing, you know, prototype. Come up with a set of prototype. Don't think about mass production. Think about small production. First and most important thing is prove your concept, right? And, you know, going back to kind of uh, touching on Shopify a little bit, you know, there are tools out there like Shopify that can allow you to actually test your concept very quickly, and very easily. Um, you know, your first prototype, it's not going to be perfect. I think if you clearly communicate that with your customers a little bit, I think they'll be a lot more forgiven in the beginning. Um, you know, they'll pretend something that you're not. You know, don't go out there and you know, even if you're like, you know, one person company with 30 products, you know, or 30 units. Don't pretend that you're the next, you know, Nike or, or <laughs> but, you know, just be transparent with your customers. That listen, you know, we're, we're a startup, you know, and obviously there are, you know, kind of a crowdfunding uh, channels that you can also, uh, platforms that you can also use, you know, be, be straightforward with your customers and, 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 and tell them your story in a genuine way and, and prove the concept whether your product does have a market fit, right? Product market fit, and that's a term that I think you know, a lot of people borrow from tech side, the tech world, right? Is it, the first question, question that I ask a lot of people I, I interact and meet with is how do you know you have a product market fit? Right? You have a concept, you have an idea, you have this hunch of this thing that you want to build. Um, but that's your hunch. It's in your mind. You haven't proved anything yet, right? So how do you go and Proof that your hunch, your concept is valid and there's a market for it that you can actually make a business, right? I joke around with some entrepreneurs I meet is that, is this a project, right? Is this a home project or is this a business? You know, and, and there's nothing wrong with projects. You know, you can have your day job and keep a project aside, but if you have a project, don't treat it as a real P&L because you, you, you can think of it as a project, as a hobby, if you may, right? Um, but, but you know, if once you think about business, then the question is, can you sell it? And, and now you profit by selling and so on and so forth. So I think you know, tying that back a little bit to your point or to your question about how do you go about that from the production side? And, and you know, I would say forget about mass production, forget about cost even in the beginning. Um, just prove your concept as quickly as you can to prove that you have product market fit. If you don't, go back to the drawing board. If you do, then think about your second batch, third batch, and eventually think about mass production. 
Mm, okay, so I like this. So this is let's break this down a little bit. So you first said that you have to first make sure you have product market fit, and then prove that the concept is a valid one. Is that that's something that actually can sell? So do you have a prototype at this point? Like, what are you putting out into the market to test if there's a product market fit? Yeah. So so for us in the beginning, you know, we started the brand initially with fifty units. You know, it was a fifty units. Um, you know, and, and I, and, and, and I used that as a caveat because really the first 50 units were sold right away, but it was offered to family. So that never counts. You know, I always joke around and say like, look, your first 50 batch, your mom and your brother and your cousins bought it. Mm-hmm. You know, eh, I wouldn't call that a product market fit test yet. Right. But our true test was the first hundred units that we made and, uh, and they did so really well. Uh, we got a lot of feedback, uh, and we were very transparent with our customers in the beginning in terms of, listen, you know, we, we are an emerging brand. Um, you know, this is kind of the, our story. This is what we're trying to fix in the market space. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, here's our products and, and, you know, we welcome any feedback and our customers or the first hundred customers. And, 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 you know, I don't remember sadly all hundred percent, all hundred of them, but I do remember actually the first 20. You know, those 20 customers stuck mm-hmm. with me because those 20 customers actually give us very great feedback. They bought it back, even though in the beginning in, there were a few issues with some of the design uh, aspect of the bag. They they came back and said, I'm keeping the bag. And here's the reason I'm keeping it. But here are some of the recommendations in terms of making the bag better. Um, so that that's one area that we, we uh, oh, that's how we went about you know, in terms of proving product market fit. Um, okay. We also we also had the chance to work with a lot of influencers in the beginning. Um, that's kind of our core community. Um, you know, we so so we work with our kind of influencer community that we had a relationship or you know previous relationship with to kind of test the product and get the feedback that way as well. Right. So you don't want because you don't want to launch the product going to a blind. So you want to use you know people that you know, people that you know that will be your customers and have them test and give you feedback feedback along the way. So, um, again, just a couple of different ways that we went about pr- proving the product, uh, proving the, pr- the product market fit and, and making sure the product actually is going to be a viable product. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned that you have some influencers that you're working with and at this stage, it's still kind of a, a beta beta stage where you aren't sure you still got to prove that the product is a product market fit. Now, when, when you're working with with like influencers, how similar are they to the actual market? Like, do they are they skewing more towards a certain way, or they're kind of under, I guess, skewing towards the, a different way, depending on like how they compare to your actual target customers? Yeah, it's 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 a, I think a mixed bag. You know, uh, unfortunately, I think you know in, in fashion specifically, there, there are a bunch of influencers that we had the privilege to work with in the past. So, um, and, and they all vary. You know, it, depending on the influence you work with on the fitness side, you know, you would say that, you know, a lot of their followers are very much like our target customers. Um, so, so you approach marketing slightly different when you work with that particular influencer. And on the fashion and the lifestyle side, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. So I think it comes down a little bit to understanding the influencer that you work with and, and, um, and, and, and get to know her and get to know her audience, right? And, and depending on who follows her, I think you, you, you change your questions and your goal of testing slightly different depending on who they are. So it's, it's a, it's, it's not a kind of a one size fit all. It really is kind of a, you know, again, first, first and foremost, build a connection and build the relationship with the influencer. But then, you know, asking those questions of like, who, who are the people who are following you and, what does that mean for my brand? Mm-hmm. Now, did you know, is that, is that how you got the initial, uh, I guess, eyeballs to get to sell those first hundred units to those influencers or were there other ways to try to get just some kind of uh, test customers to buy? Yeah, boy. I mean, in the beginning was everything. You know? So we, we didn't do advertising for, uh, for a long time, actually, paid advertising just because we... Wanted to create an organic community before anything, right? I mean, this day and age, there's so many venture-backed retail brands that are popping out left to right. And, you know, before even taking any time building their own core community, they start buying ads left and right, right? Which, which, first of all, it's not a sustainable business model, in my opinion. But also, you know, unfortunately for brands like ours, it creates a lot of bad noise for us. Um, so, so we didn't want to do that. 
we uh, we wanted to create an organic community, you know, for the first two 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 and a half years, really. Um, and, and and to answer your question in terms of how we went about generating traffic and putting eyeballs on the brand, you just have to test. I mean, we tested all, right? We tested from standing in the corner um, in Soho, you know, and handing out flyers, asking people, "Have you heard of Kara?" Um, because we like to tell you our story. Um, all the way to you know getting on tele- national television, right? We we were uh, we were invited by um, the Lifetime Network to appear in Project Runway, and that was a great opportunity to get on. So I, I, I gave you two very drastic examples in terms of like you know like you know you go from street corner essentially telling your you, the story of your brand and the street corner to anybody that that that, that want to hear listening to you. All the way to to national TV, and and you know that goes a little bit with you know kind of the entrepreneurial spirit a little bit, right? You have to be relentless, right? So, so would you recommend then the early focus for anyone out there that has that is trying to test product market fit but doesn't have customers? Is that secure? That should be your only focus, just any way possible to find some customer target customers to test your product. Absolutely, number one priority, you know, is is to you know, and, and you know, you shouldn't give it for free because um, you know you, you, there's a certain cost that you went into you producing the product, right? But but it's getting as many people's hand and eyeballs on your product as possible, getting the question of product market fit, and then you're not gonna get it right the first time. I've never seen a brand that got it right the first time. Even if you listen to like the, you know, Nike and 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 how. Phil Nice started the brand. You know, the, the Nike product was horrendous in the beginning, right? And but that's okay. That's okay because you know your goal is to get people to give you feedback as quickly as possible, and then evolve and improve and and, and elaborate from that initial feedback. So to answer your question, absolutely, I think that should, in my opinion, at least, that should be the number one thing you focus on. Forget about marketing. Forget about anything else. Get the product market fit right. Yeah, it's it's amazing how I think a lot of entrepreneurs will shoot their shot once and then fail and then just abandon the entire thing. I think going out there, putting a product out there and it fails, that's great because now you actually can get feedback on what needs to change. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Now, we talk about product market fit. If you come back and you find out that this is there is not a product market fit yet, where do you go next? Like, do you look at the product? Do you look at the market? Maybe you're targeting the wrong people. Like, what is that next step that you take just so that you don't kind of start chasing your tail? Fail quick, fail cheap. That that's I always say that to to people that that that, that ask us about kind of you know in similar situation that you described, right? Is you you to your point, you will fail. So the point is, you know, if you go into it with the idea of you will fail. Um, the next question is, how do you do it quickly and as cheaply as possible? Because if you take all your funds, right, all the money you have, you know, you, you finally kind of get, get the courage to start a business and, you know, you've got the loans, you can maybe some, some money from friends and family. And, and if you put all that money into the first test and you fail, you're, you're in a tough spot. Um, so, so don't do that, right? Try to test as cheaply as possible. And then if you fail, that's okay. Have a contingency plan and say, okay, what's plan B? And the most important part, a lot of times, I think, is also just understanding truly why you fail. I think people, a lot of times, gets too bugged down. I think, um, and 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 too 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 honing on the idea, of, oh gosh, I failed, versus really truly understand the root cause of the failure. You know, and and if you dig deep enough, there's always that one cause. Could be pricing, could be product, could be market. Could be seasonality, could be, gosh, I mean, there's a thousand different things, and and obviously this varies a little bit depending on the category that you're in. Um, but yeah, fail quick and fail fast, you know, and, and fail cheaply. That that's that that's what I would say, and and have the courage, you know, a little bit to to stand up. Uh, again, you know, it's not about when and how you fall; it's all about how you get up from that, right? So I I think. Um, yeah, it's it's it, but you know it's setting expectations when you before you start is that you will fail, and that's great. You shouldn't see it as a failure. You should see it as a learning learning experience. 
Yeah, I think that's important about failing quick and cheap because you want that momentum behind you. Otherwise, there's such a long period in between. It's really easy to lose that motivation and momentum. And then, of course, the budget to stay in the game, right? If you're spending so much money failing, you're going to run out of, you know, run out of cash pretty soon. Now, for your particular situation, how much did you know about your customer, who your customer was ever, like at the beginning? How much did that change over time? It changed a lot. I mean, you know, you, I'll, you're always going to have your target customer, your actual customer, right? And you obviously don't know what your actual customer is um, until until you really start selling. And matter of fact, I would argue that you will, you will continue to learn throughout the lifetime of the brand because the actual customer will evolve over time and uh, and your your goal uh, or your job really is to evolve with her uh, or with him in, in some cases. Um, you know, for us, I would say, you know, we got about 50, 55% right in terms of our customer base. Uh, we were targeting active women, millennial, um, you know, living primarily in urban areas. Um, you know, we were somewhat of a, you know, uh, you know, we didn't really look into kind of the, the average household income and, and ethnicity. We didn't look in too much into that. It was, for us, it was more just kind of a lifestyle. Um, understanding, you know, kind of, you know, what, what, the, what, how does she live? And, and I think once we understood that, I think it was a lot more apparent for us to understand who she was or who she, who she, who we wanted, who, 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 how we want to go about targeting her, if you may. Um, but yeah, I would say I got about fifty-five percent right. You know, I think the rest we're still learning. Uh, but you know, just have the expectations that your actual customers—it's—it's it's not going to be the same as your target customers. So mm-hmm. just be ready, to be ready to change. Got it. So definitely want to talk a little bit about how learning this affects things like the product decisions and marketing decisions in a second. Before we get there, how do you pull out this information in the first place? Like when you do have, let's say you hustle, you hustle, maybe you're selling on the street corners, like you said, which is obviously very accessible for anyone out there that wants to try to get first customers. If you're able to first get those hundred customers, what questions or how do you get the valuable feedback to actually make decisions? Yeah, I, I think um you know, there's a couple of different things and, and really there's no one answer because it really depending on the data point, the feedback you get for different parts, I think you will interpret it differently. Um, you know, on the product side, you know, we always break down the product feedback in a couple of different compartments or a couple of different kind of segments. When it comes to functionality and features and so on and so forth, we do listen quite a bit to our customers, right? I mean, and when I say that, it's all about, Kind of number of pockets or the size of the pockets, the location of the pockets, and so on and so forth. So, um, so when it comes to that type of feedback, we do take it very seriously, and you know, and and I know the product team takes that very very seriously. When it comes to product, when it comes to taste making, design, uh, when it comes to aesthetics, um, that's where our creative director and my co-founder kind of takes the lead a little bit, right? Truthfully speaking, you know, the way I think about it is that that's the artist, that's the art behind our brand. Um, because we think of ourselves as a tastemaker, because our co-founder is a tastemaker and she is a fashion designer, you know, the beauty and I think the, the uniqueness about her or any artist, if you may, is that they're able to set trends versus following trends, right? Um, and what that means is a lot of times she will be able to tell you something that you need before you even know it. Right. So that's, I think the difference in terms of design a little bit, uh, when we are the one who's sending the trends and leading the trend and being the tastemaker versus I think some other brands will go about design more in the data way, you know, looking at what's the trend and then let's catch up to the trend. Right. So, um, so, so that, that's, that's how we think about in terms of gathering product feedback or feedback in general from, from kind of our customers and how to incorporate that into the brand. I think that's super insightful where it's basically the feedback that you get when it is more on the functionality side, that's driven more by the customer. But if you are a a tastemaker, trend-setting brand, the form is driven by the the brand itself. Absolutely. You know, that's where that that's that's Carmen's uh that's Carmen's backyard, right? I mean it, it's 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 the area where she still is, you know, looking for input and feedback, I think, from, um, from not just the customer, but, you know, from the market, from the world, from the external world, if you may. But, 
this is an area where she's very clear that she's making the call and and again that's the juju behind the brand you know it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's if you look at a lot of european fashion houses at the end of the day right you you're it, we're talking about different brands between cara and, and the european brand but but at the end of the day if i think about those european brands the reason that you're paying such a premium at the end of the day it really is for the taste of the designer the taste of that brand right so um so yeah so to your point we, we're very clear about that is that when it comes to aesthetics when it comes to uh form right because we we always say we balance form and function when it comes to form is our call you know i i think we don't want to be influenced by the external when it comes to that um so that's on the product side in terms of how we take product feedback or or, or external feedback from our customers um and on the marketing side i think you know it's it's a little bit of a mixed bag um obviously if you have certain if you know certain things about your customers in terms of their social graphics or demographics and so on and so forth you probably want to target your messaging your marketing messaging differently just because you kind of want to resonate with your customers once you know who she is um but so so there it's a little bit more dynamic you know in terms of how you take the the market information and put that into your brand, uh, how to leverage that data, if you may. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's that. But yeah, on the product side, I think, I think, you know, we're pretty comfortable with kind of the, the, the formula that we came up with in terms of how to, how do we go about designing and, and producing value product for the customers. Got it. Now I want to talk a little bit about the, the pricing. At what point does that come in where you, where you're able to test and, and finalize pricing for your products? Yeah, I think, you know, I would say in the beginning, you should really think about uh, cost plus, you know, and I don't want to be, you know, I have a finance background, so I don't want to too geeked out in terms of the different pricing mm-hmm. models. But, you know, I, I always say cost plus is probably something you want to think about when you first start a brand. Um, I think once your brand becomes a little more established, and when I say a little more established, I would say at least being business for five to 10 years, where people start knowing you and wanted to come to you and start trusting you more and giving you more goodwill, right? In, in finance, we call it goodwill, the sitting balance sheet. So that's the goodwill that you generate over time. Um, then you can think about value-driven pricing, you know, where you can start thinking about charging premiums and, 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 you know, I mean, I would never tell you how much, uh, uh, a Hermes bag or a Birkin bag will actually cost to make, right? I, I can tell you probably. Uh, it's not the tens of thousand dollars they charge, but you know, they're a mess. So they can charge value driven pricing, right? That's not a cost plus model. So, but in the beginning, I think for, you know, for those, those who are, you know, for, for your audience who are listening to this, who are, you know, thinking about starting for the first time and how to set the price. I think it's, it's, it's a combination of primarily cost plus because you've got to cover your basis, but also just, you know, doing market research and understand, Hey, what are your competitors charging and, you know, what kind of play you want to make? You, you, you want to, again, this is a very kind of a case by case answer just because I think, you know, if you, let's say if you are in a category that is a commodity category, right? Where, you know, in that case, price is very sensitive. And so then you're going to think about what am I competing on price because you are in a commodity space or am I competing with something else? If you're in a different space where you know that your price can be a little more elastic, right? We talk about pricing elasticity and so on and so forth. Um, then you think about, okay, you know, how elastic do I want to make my pricing? But then if it's lower or higher, what's my value proposition, right? To, to the customer. So I think it's a little, little case by case. Um, again, it's very industry driven and I think you just got to, do your homework a little bit and, and think that through. It's a very important point that you bring up, though, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail to think about that in, in early stages. Um, obviously, you know, most people think they just want to maximize the margin as much as possible. But I think I think uh, it's an important question to answer right off the bat in terms of, hey, what's your pricing all about? Yeah, and is this something that you have to keep in mind early on when you're going through this this validation of the product market fit? To like, how much do you need to know off the bat? Is this profitable, or can this be profitable? Yeah, well, that that, that should be you know a question that you should answer right away. You know, may, maybe to my earlier point, maybe 
it's okay to not be profitable for the first week or first month because you're going through that testing period, whatever the testing period means for you. But, you know, if you don't have a profitable business, you, you have a hobby. You don't have a business, right? I mean, you, you, it's, an, it's an expense. It's a personal expense that you get to uh, write it down from your personal expenses at the mm-hmm. end of the year, right? It's not a, it's not a P&L. Um, so, so profitability has to always be there. I think, you know, is it okay to change your pricing throughout your journey? Sure, everybody does it. Um, is it recommended? I, I like to not change pricing and have the rigor to not to do that, right? Just because even though you could argue in the beginning your reach is small, right? You have a smaller customer base. Those customers are still going to be loyal to you if you treat them well. And I just believe that every single customer counts and I don't want to lose the small group of people that I create a connection with in the early stages because, you know, I didn't you know, have my stuff together and, and, and messed up pricing. You know what I mean? So it's an important question. I think, you know, obviously, like I said, if you need to change it down the road to protect your profitability, do it, but get it right. Get it right early on. I think, I think it's important. Got it. Now I want to jump back to the earlier point or earlier question about now knowing the lifestyle of your customer. Can you give us some like uh, some uh, actual examples of how this played out in terms of marketing? Once you understood more about your customer, how did that change how you marketed the product? Yeah, like I said, we didn't do much marketing in the beginning. I mean, it really it was it, it was all about. Uh, and, and when you say marketing, you know, I allude mainly to kind of pay marketing or pay media, right? Um, we, we, we didn't. I mean, we, you know, it was a lot of it. It's, you know, um, a little bit of hassling to your point earlier. So just, you know, kind of attend events and, and, you know, try to, uh, in, you know, get including communities or trunk shows or, um, you know, I mean, however you think the best, cheapest way you can to get your product in front of others, right? Um, you know, I, I think when I think about marketing in general, we, 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 we just felt that, it, first of all, it's a huge expense when it comes to marketing. So we just didn't want to spend the money on that aspect of business very early on. We didn't have VC funding. We didn't want VC funding in the beginning. Um, so what that translated to was that most of our costs went into product improvements and product development. So truthfully, you know, be, be, to, to be kind of frank, we didn't really have a lot of budget for marketing. Later on, I think, you know, we, we, uh, as we grew as a company and as we started evolving and so on and so forth, I think, you know, marketing became a lot more important of a question to answer. Um, I think, I think, Felix, you, your question was, how do we, how do we think about marketing or how do we? Yeah, just that now that you know that once you learn more about your customer and that their yeah. lifestyle, how does that play out in your messaging or the way that you market the products? Yeah, so, so it's important, right? So, you know, half of the battle is understanding these years. Uh, once you become certain scale and once we start realizing that we want to start doing more and more marketing, um, you know, and, and this is where a lot of technology comes in play. There's, you know, a handful of vendors I can think of in terms of offering the right uh, platforms to help you understand who your customers are. And once you understand it, it, I think it's absolutely empirical that you do change and target, um, those customers with different marketing messages. Um, and, and, and I mean, there's gazillion material out there that you can read and, and obviously you can definitely hire, you know, the right team to actually help you with this as well. But I think, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in one message fits all. Um, I, I think. If you talk to any savvy marketer, you know, they will probably all agree with me. Um, so, so the idea is how do you segment it into the right buckets? You know, not too many because then your message gets very diluted, but you know, you segment it into a few major buckets and then come out with slightly different messages to target them, right? Because, you know, in, in, by default, you're going to have different group of people within your customer demographic, right? You're going to have the ones that love your brand, but don't want to spend, you know, maybe as much as, you know, that, that, that your MSRP is and looking for deals. You talk to them in, in, in one way. Uh, you have the other group of people that really, it's not really price sensitive, but really want a message or wants a product or something that resonates with the lifestyle that, that, that want to feel that you're talking to them and having that dialogue with them. You talk to them slightly differently. So again, I think understand your demographics, understand your customers is 
really half of the battle. Once you have that, I, I would, you know, definitely segment your messaging and, and, you know, tailor it as much as you can to the different groups that you have within your customer segmentation. Mm. And are there any tools that you rely on for the segmentation or any other kind of marketing related tools that, or apps that you rely on to, to run the business? Yeah, there are a few, there are a few, um, there's definitely a few tools out there. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I can give a few shout outs to a few. Uh, honestly, we're still thinking through that a little bit ourselves. Um, the truth is the good ones out there are very expensive. And, 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 you know, you, you have to kind of answer the question of, can I afford that? Or is it going to return, you know, uh, is the investment going to pay out, if you may? Um, you know, we like to be scrappy and I think scrappy is good, no matter how big you are as a company. So, you know, we're using a bunch of different tools and, and kind of put them into SQL internally and, and hyper analyze them. Um, we find that that's the best way that we get to rack and stack the data in the way we find it uh, interesting and find it uh, um, insightful, if you may. Um, but no, I, I, like I said, I wish I can give a few shout outs to, uh, to some, some platform out there that we, we, um, we work with. But, you know, most of the members of my team, they're pretty data savvy and we, uh, we, we, uh, SQL is our friend. Got it. Awesome. So Karasport.com is a website. C-A-R-A-A-S-P-O-R-T.com. Karasport.com. I'll leave yes, this sir. last question. What's been the biggest lesson that you or you as a, you and the company learned last year that you want to apply this year? Yeah, I think uh, getting the right team. You know, I we would not be who we are without the the, the man and woman that, that works with us on an everyday basis. And, and, you know, we actually are looking to expand our team, you know, in a number of different areas. Um, you know, that, that is, uh, that, that is critical. You know, I think for the first few years during the rhyming periods of any brand, I think, you know, that the founder or the co-founders are, are critical for the business. But once you start getting certain scale, um, hiring the right team to help you grow and scale is, is critical. Um, and, and so we were very fortunate to, to have found, you know, all the right members of our team. But again, you know, because we're growing, we're scaling and we're looking, we're looking to, to increase our team. So, um, for all those folks out there, I think looking to create a brand and scale and, and build something unique and amazing, um, find the right partner, find the right partner and the right team to help you build. Cause I think that you're going to, you're going to go a long way if you have that versus, uh, versus not. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and experience, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.